Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. This week, I am joined by Marcus Lee, the founder of Eli, who are building a lightweight electric vehicle similar to a smart car, but a bit smaller, and selling into the European and American markets. This is possibly one of the most interesting interviews I've done with an early stage founder of a hardware company. We get into the real nitty gritty details of how he's funded the company to date and the challenges and opportunities that exist in the space. We also discuss the Chinese microelectric car industry, which is an area that I think is desperately undercovered here in the West. I think you will find the whole conversation fascinating, and I'm looking forward to feedback on the episode. As you'll hear in the end, Marcus is also one of the companies that will be presenting at Micromobility America on the 15th and 16th of September in the Bay Area. He'll be joining me and about a thousand others to talk about the latest in micromobility and lightweight electric vehicles. He'll be part of the pitch competition that will happen on the stage on the 16th alongside amazing other companies such as Tor Scooters, Bow Mobility, Biomotal, Wheel and more. We're expecting this to be our best event yet. Get your tickets now at micromobility.io. And with that, here's Marcus. Let's go. Welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today Marcus Lee from Eli. How are you going today, Marcus? Good. How are you, Oliver? I'm really well, and I'm very excited for this conversation. I think this area, especially kind of heavy micromobility, is one that I've been trying to focus on a little bit more in the last couple of episodes, and we've had Nimbus on, and we're going to have a couple of other companies in this space as well. And I've been following your project for for quite a while, so I'm, I'm really excited to unpack it with you. But look, I feel like what we should start with is a little bit about yourself. So obviously, you've got Eli, which is a really interesting kind of small two-seater but four-wheel vehicle. But that's not where you started. You didn't start in the auto space. Can you take us a little bit through your story? Like how on earth did you end up coming to start a car company? <laughs> yeah, sure. Really excited to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast. And first, a little background. I'm the founder of Eli Electric Vehicles. And Eli is a micro EV startup. We're building a new breed of compact, efficient, and affordable EVs. And one way I like to put it is that we're trying to build the iPad of cars and I think at Micromobility, you guys call it the pod cars, which I really love. So it's a more compact, more efficient, more affordable EVs, especially designed for urban streets. Yeah, perfect. You did a better summary than I would have. Yeah, thank you. So yeah, you mentioned that my background isn't in automotive industry. So I had this idea started when I was in architecture school, actually, in New York. I was very interested in cities. I'm very interested in urban design and urbanity in general. And I felt very strongly back then that there's something wrong with the way we approach the design of the built environment. But at that time, I couldn't quite put my finger on it uh, because there are entire disciplines putting a lot of efforts and capital into trying to design better cities, you know, better access, you know, walkability for cities, sustainability, and all these things you know, we're designing for people, but in cities, people aren't just people. They are these sometimes oversized single occupancy cars. So that really bothered me. And it's like, you know, you design these kind of intricate and kind of fun pinball machines that are cities, 
but instead of pinballs, you put in oranges. So the entire thing doesn't work. Yeah. And, and those like beautiful renderings of these livable communities, as soon as you put SUVs and highways in them, they're, they're ruined. They're not beautiful anymore. And they have highways everywhere and people aren't walking to their cafes. They aren't biking. So that really, really started thinking about what are the alternatives. And over the years, it has become more and more into focus that these problems, that uh, these kind of uh, misfits between conventional way of traveling, private transportation, and what we want the cities to be, this misfit are causing a lot of these congestion, pollution, urban sprout, and waste of valuable urban space, waste of raw materials. And these are the problem of the century. So for me personally, I'm, I wanted to solve this problem. And this is, Eli has been on that journey of trying to find ways to build new product categories that are better alternative than conventional cars. Yeah, yeah, amazing. It's funny, I think you and I, and also Ryan Chapitsky also came in, who was the founder of Jump, kind of all ended up, you know, in the same place, which is like, it, it all comes down to the vehicle. Like, how do you build a better vehicle for this? And, and Ryan chose to do it with e-bikes through that jump process. But you clearly have gone and, and chosen to do a vehicle that is quite unique. So can you take us through it? Like, what is the specs of the vehicle? And like, you know, how you've thought about that? Like, what's different about it? Yeah. So we started with a category, which we find really interesting called um, we call it micro EV, but it's really in the US, it's called low speed vehicles or neighborhood electric vehicles. And in Europe, it falls into the category of light quadricycle, L6E to be specific. And it's a class of street legal vehicles that you can actually drive on roads. There are certain limitations on math speed and on which kind of roads you can drive in the States. Uh, which is majority of you know community roads and urban roads, but you can't drive them on highways, on expressways. But this is interesting because even way before EV became a thing, even way before Tesla, people were driving EVs. People were driving these micro EVs in the form factor of these kind of, you have in India, you have these kind of rickshaws, and in the States, you have them in the form factor of golf carts. And there are communities of people already driving these kind of vehicles on the urban streets. And they don't even think about them. They don't even realize that they're driving EVs. They're just driving a alternative solution to their normal second car. Or for a lot of communities, they all they need to do is the getting around uh, in, within this 20 minutes radius. So this kind of product is perfect for them. So that was really interesting for me. And so this is the category that we decided to really release its potential by building a better product for these people trying to get around in a more easy way. I mean, I think the thing that struck me about the vehicle, and I'll have a photo of this up in the podcast uh, notes and things like this, but is that you're, you're about 30% smaller than a standard smart car. And it strikes me as being you're like a little bit bigger than the like the I was just in Amsterdam and they have this car there called the Beetle, which is like the one that is very uh, it's very popular among the the Dutch like to say it's all the rich girls who live around Vondel Park who like drive around in these in these things. But they're actually like 
you know, they're just built for two seats. They've got an electric powertrain. And the thing that's kind of quite interesting about them is that they, you know, they're enclosed, but they also are categorized as being, you know, like they can be used on bike lanes. And so, yeah. you know, I think that the this idea of, of something that's really small is kind of, you know, like it's been explored, but I think the, the part that really is a unique about your vehicle in some ways has been it's fully enclosed. Because that oftentimes I think a lot of the vehicles, like they, they, you look at golf carts, for example, oftentimes they're not enclosed. A lot of the quadricycles I've seen haven't been fully enclosed, which is, I think, a thing that a lot of people, especially in more temperate climates, would be looking at and saying I'd really like. And then it looks cool, you know, relative to some of the other other vehicles that I've seen in the space. And, you know, it, it strikes me that there's a really big opportunity here for these vehicles in, the, in this space. Can you talk me through, you know, what you've seen in terms of the other vehicles in the space and the, and the, and the growth in sales? Like, how do you, when you go out and pitch to investors and things, and things like this, what are you sort of telling in that story around small, lightweight electric vehicles? Yeah, I mean, this isn't a new category that we're building. It's not a new idea that we have a huge gap in between mopeds and a full-size car. And what I love talking about you is that you and your audience already understand the impact of these kind of right-sized vehicles can have. And you understand the data of, for example, uh, 75% of all car trips are under 10 miles. And most average speed in cities is 15 miles per hour. And the average car occupancy is 1.5 people. So it's either one people or two people. So it's rarely more than two for average car trips. And so for us, it comes down to how, and this is a new category as well, right? People have been trying to build new vehicle options. There isn't a lack of ideas that you mentioned startups in Europe, and there are startups in the US as well. And so for us, it's about how can we really nail it, nail that uh, product market fit, and really entry into with a product that has the offerings that people want and at an affordable price. So what we have done is really looking at this market opportunity of under 10 mile trips and thinking about not not shrinking, because you mentioned smart car. We're not trying to shrink a car down to a smaller form factor, but we're really just building from the ground up. What do people need? Do people need this for trips under 10 miles? at average speed of uh, urban speed. Um, 30 to 50 kilometers an hour, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And people do need a lot of space. You know, you need to fit two people comfortably and plus you need to have enough cargo space for luggages and stuff and groceries and maybe bring a dog. And so you have, you need certain level of safety and comfort. But, you know, as soon as we know that these vehicles aren't going on highways, on purpose for that there's a lot of room we can optimize the weight of the vehicle the efficiency of the the drivetrain but you also definitely need enclosure uh, you need ac because most people don't live in perfectly climate cities uh, i i speaking like from my experience uh, i've lived in uh, new york i lived in beijing and both uh, high density cities relatively benign weather but still the winter in, in, in new york can be gruesome so you want ac and you know from the last summer you, we, we all understand how, how hot and how important air conditioning can be so these are the core attribute and we're trying to put all these traditional comfort of a car into a package 
that is acceptable to the general public, but also solve the problem of over 75, uh, that can also address over 75% of car trips. Awesome. And so when you, when you're talking about it, so say for example, you're like in downtown New York, you've got a vehicle that's two seats. How, how much is the range? Yeah, the range is for this vehicle is 100 kilometer. Right. So it's like 60 ish miles. Yep. Yeah. In miles. Yeah. And then the top speed is about 50 kilometers an hour, 30 miles per hour ballpark. It's 25 mile per hour, um, top speed in New York state. Yeah. 25. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So forty-five kilometers an hour, awesome. And then the price for the vehicle at the moment, like obviously you're you're in the very early stage of production, and like I want to also just say before we get any further, just hats off to you for getting to production. I know it is a grueling, grueling, grueling journey to be able to even get vehicles into the hands of people. You've you've obviously delivered a few of them at this point. So can you talk us through, you know, like the the price point that we have for the current vehicle? Yeah, so we are selling in Europe at the moment in limited quantities. And you're correct, we're in small batch productions and we're building them and we've already shipped over 100 vehicles to Europe and some of them are already in the hands of customers, but still very early stage. We're building them in limited quantities and the price that we have, uh, the current market price in Europe is for the Eli Vero Plus, the premium end, the high-end version is around 14,000 euros. And it depends on the countries and the dealerships, but it's around that range. Excellent. Cool. And the the ones that are shipping to Europe, so you, you mentioned it was a 25 mile per hour in New York State, but if you're in Europe, is that a different higher speed? Yes, it's 45 kilometer per hour. And we do have in our lineup a faster version that goes into a different product category, but the existing version is 45 kilometer per hour. Awesome. Great. And you mentioned that you've got them like shipped to Europe and some of them in their hands of the customers. And, and I found it interesting that you've decided to use a distributor rather than going direct to customer. So, so like, can you talk me through that decision, like how you've thought about distribution and why you've chosen that particular route to market, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, rather than we picked our distributors, we had a lot of distributors that came to us and looking for this specific type of products. And a lot of these distributors and dealers, they are micromobility dealers. So they've been selling scooters, e-bikes, and motorbikes for years. And they're very experienced in this space. And they're, but they understand, they, they see the writings on the wall. You know, people are moving forward in this, in this space with other type of products. And they're actively looking for enclosure and looking for AC, but uh, they still want the convenience of, of traditional micromobility options. So we really, our entry um, strategy in Europe really based on the fact that we see an established dealership network in micromobility, and we found reliable distributors who are very experienced with after sales of these vehicles, with the parts, uh, distribution of parts, and providing service to both dealers and customers. So in the beginning, you know, we're quite early stage. Uh, so it would be really cool to work with these people to really understand the market and really test the product market fit. Yeah, marvelous. And and for those folks, I mean, I take it that, you know, they're taking a bit of a risk on you. Like, do they have any experience in working with quadricycles specifically, like enclosed quadricycles, or is this the first time that they've dealt with this as well? It's interesting. Our main distributor, they actually started their distribution business with 
mini EVs with these kind of smaller vehicle products, not mini EV, mini vehicles. I think back then they were gasoline based and they sort of pivoted towards a two wheeler and they do some ATV distribution. And so it, it's an interesting story of uh, finding their way back to micro EV that now this space has advanced so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. The vehicle, I think, is, is very interesting in, in the sense of like, there aren't really that many out there, but there are an, a few notable names and we've talked about them, but I also want to bring up the uh, the Citroen Army, the Nimbus uh, that is that's meant to be coming down the, the pipe that I've, uh, I've interviewed the founder for, Trigo. Uh, you've probably got way better names than I do, but I'm just trying to think of the other ones that come off the top of my head. You know, do you, how do you think about competition? Like, do you think that the people who are buying the Eli's are buying them you know, because they're choosing not to buy a Citroen Ami and so they're buying this one? Or are you competing mostly with non-consumption? Are you dealing with mostly with people who have not consumed a small vehicle like this in the past? Yeah, I mean, we have customers coming in having tried Citroen Ami, but they want AC and they feel like our steering, because we have all these automotive features like power steering and power braking and keyless entry and, and, um, and these kind of you know, small features that makes the experience very smooth uh, and LED highlight and these kind of small details. They want these additional things. And Citroen Ami is kind of like a golf car based architecture platform. I think it's a great product and it really helps to educate the market and for Citroen. And it's, it's more of a marketing campaign for them to really attract young people to their brand. But we are really taking this category seriously and trying to build the best product we can. So we do have people like have tried a Citroen. I mean, we even have dealers have both these cars, both our car and their car. And we ask about a like comparison of experience and they're pretty surprised even at the question because they feel like it's completely different product. But we do have a more low-end product like Eli Dura Plus, the one we're selling right now is not a low-end product. But we do have a lower end product going into the market with more competitive price and better features that we think that might be more on par with people looking for a cheaper alternative. Yeah, so I think it's great that we have more players that go into this space to educate the market, to have the visibility on the road. It's just like how in the beginning, you know, Tesla said, uh, Elon Musk said, you know, it's, it's good that there are competitions from traditional OEMs going to the EV space because, frankly, the entire ceiling of the market should be lifted by all of us so that we all get a bigger pie and people are all more comfortable driving mini EVs. Yes, totally. It's, it's interesting to hear you talk about the, the like the features on the on the vehicle as being differentiated, like uh, little things, but like keyless entry and LED headlights and all that sort of stuff. Like. Is there anybody else who sort of that you can perceive that's in the market with those things in in a vehicle at this point? That's sort of very small electric vehicle. Yeah, I mean, I've seen um, competitors in the states as well that they have options for some of the features that we offer, like heating, uh, enclosure, and lithium battery, and and these like small things. But they all they all charge a pretty hefty add-on to these options. And so our approach is we want to just offer these features as included in the package because we really, we're really confident in the scale and in people's demand for these kind of vehicles. 
and these kind of features. So we just have them included and so that we can drive down the price, the costs of these features and provide these level of comfort as a default option to people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hear you. Can you talk me through how you've handled manufacturing? Because I think this is one of the most interesting parts about the vehicle to date has been, you know, you've effectively conformed to a lot of what Horace and I have had as a thesis for micromobility, which is that, you know, you're benefiting from a lot of the the advances in manufacturing techniques that we've seen in China around these sort of lightweight electric vehicles. There's this whole, you know, class of vehicles that nobody's really spent much time studying. And you've also had obviously the benefits of all the other, the, the kind of peace dividends of the smartphone wars, which is that you've got low cost lithium ion batteries, you've got low cost compute, you've got low cost other things that are kind of all being put together in a relatively modular way, but allows you with what is kind of comparably next to no funding. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like to be able to get to market with a vehicle. Cause I mean, you look at any of the other kind of standard car makers, I mean, it's 40 to 50 to a hundred, couple of hundred million dollars to get a model to market. And if, if I'm reading things correctly, you've raised, you know, very, very little money to be able to get these first hundred vehicles produced. So can you talk me through how you're doing your manufacturing, like how you're handling that? And then, you know, how you've thought about supply chain and that sort of thing on the back end? Yeah, I mean, this is quite standard for hardware is that you want to be frugal from the beginning and focus on getting the product to a certain stage uh, before you scale it up. But I think this is somehow like underlooked when people are building cars because sometimes people undermine the complexity of having 500 parts um, and these aren't even the parts on that level but like sub-assembly parts coming together to build one piece of product so we we've seen a lot of like i said we've seen a lot of good ideas in this pot-sized vehicle category coup concepts throughout the years I think the difficulty we identified is actually building the car. It's not the kind of the flashy concepts and uh, the kind of the market demand and for this kind of vehicles. So in the beginning, we put a lot of our focus uh, on techniques and on material, on structure, not just building a car, but also building a supply chain for this vehicle and building up a business case for scaling up this vehicle category in a uh, in an efficient capital efficient way so for us that's very important in the beginning so, so our approach was a little unconventional and, and and instead of sort of fundraising go to institutional investors with a you know a, a show car or a concept car we uh, went into production from the early stage trying to figure out how can we do that with the limited funding that we have and then when we have the product market fit proved. I think we are already uh, very ready for scaling up and iterating into new products. Fantastic. So, so just if we can go back like a couple of steps, I'm just curious for you how you went from, you know, an idea of we want to do a small lightweight electric two-seater to we've got something that is ready to go into production like was that done by a firm did you do that design yourselves you know what was the interfacing for all of that yeah it's really a process but my background is in design and i design buildings and i i I really like these kind of challenges so i participated a lot in the look of the car and its uh, specs so I led uh, a outside design team, uh, actually three different outside de- design team with different focus, because 
you know, we want to make sure the design is done right. And it's a, quite an international and, um, and collaborative process. But uh, I keep telling our team that we, we just didn't expect that designing this kind of vehicle is the easiest part. <laughs> and I keep saying that we're going to have so much fun designing new vehicles once we, ha- we now have the know-how of this process. Yeah, but uh, we also have uh, engineering teams on mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, and a really strong supply chain team to make sure that everything we design is buildable. And it's also fit into our thesis of building something that is scalable from the beginning and something that is that we can drive down the cost in the, over the long term. And it's really easy to assemble. And we have this thesis of making the vehicle very easy for contract production. Uh, and currently, we're already working with two contract manufacturers. Um, so a lot of the know-how and um, a lot of the difficulty really goes into you know, the materials that we choose and the structure that we choose to fit in that, to fit that material. And how can we take that to uh, not just initial production, but mass production and scale it up across different product lineups. For sure. And and the, you mentioned that they're using contract manufacturers. Are they based in China at this stage? Yeah. So our thesis is trying to make the vehicle really easy to really OEM agnostic, meaning like any, production any manufacturing can can assemble these vehicles to uh, for us and because right now we are working with uh, a china-based supply chain and in the long term we can do ckd uh, in the states in europe and as uh, ckd skd factories in in our main markets basically can you just explain ckd and skd to the audience because even i don't know what that is yeah <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, knockdown production and, and other markets. Yeah, partial production and partial assembly. Yep. So to make the vehicles easy to... that A lot of the effort goes into design phase. When we're designing the vehicle, we have to think about what structure, what what is the... Uh, how, how things are put together. So uh, we have to think about production when we're designing the vehicle to make the vehicle easy to assemble. Catch you. I hear you. Okay, very interesting. Very interesting. So in theory, what would be the unit economics of being, like you've got a contract manufacturer at the moment, but if you were to try and run your own, you know, manufacturing plant or something like this, like what is the smallest, you're you're managing to run it with 100 vehicles at the moment. What's the sort of smallest unit for a production facility that you'd be able to do? And do you know have like an understanding of what the capital cost might be for something like that? Yeah, so in the short term, we're not trying to build our own production facility. We're trying to put the capital into R&D, designing new vehicles and establish our uh, sales networks. Because for me, I think it's important that we do these kind of contract production because in China, uh, there's a huge overcapacity for building vehicles. Yeah, yeah. And we want to take advantage of that. And to build to make make sure these vehicles can be built in an affordable way. Absolutely, and in the the vehicles themselves are they made with a metal frame? Like, what's the what's the standard production? Is it like um, stamped steel, or is it like like a tubular tubular frame with like paneling put onto it? Yeah, we really kind of got away from traditional pressing and welding and painting, and and we really just focus on the assembly of things because the the structure of the vehicle is a aluminum, a hybrid aluminum extrusion 
uh, structure and we use composite exteriors uh, instead of stamping. And so this is due to we want to make sure the development cost and aeration cost can be low and we can simplify the production process. So, so for example, instead of stamping, we use composite exterior so we can just uh, we don't need stamping process at the manufacturing at the manufacturing end. Instead, we outsource that to the supply chain. Uh, so the suppliers provides us with a injection molded and painted part. And at the production, we only need final assembly. Excellent. Is that kind of standard in China at this point for the production of other like lightweight electric vehicles, or like, or was this asking something completely new of the of the industrial base there? This is different for cars. Uh, I mean, this is not standard for traditional automotive pr- uh, uh, production. Traditional automotive production, they they have to have press a press line, weld, welding shop, paint shop, assembly line. So these are the four factors, uh, or uh, uh, yeah, four factors that has to we have to have to become a automotive manufacturer. And that is because all cars are most cars, at least, are built this way. Yeah, and uh, vehicles, normal production vehicles, they run at such huge volume that it makes sense for for the uh, manufacturers to do everything in house and for them to press do their own stamping and welding and painting in-house. Totally. But that, but if we design our car that way, that makes it really difficult to contract manufacture. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that's that's exactly my, my question. And that's something that Horace and I have talked a lot about on this podcast is the, is the fact that car makers, as you say, you know, it's been done the same way for, for hundreds of, you know, like literally since the start of kind of car making. And I guess the question that I was asking about is like the Chinese, so the lightweight electric vehicles, the, the neighborhood electric vehicles, the the low speed electric vehicles that are built in China, is that how they are being built? And that and that's the, I just don't, we don't have much insight into how that, that supply chain is on that stuff. I would love to interview if you happen to know anybody in that space I'd love to interview them just because it's such an it's such an enigma and yet so exciting right like it's it's an amazing thing uh, that these these vehicles have emerged it, it is I really got into this this uh, business not really understanding a lot about these local Chinese you know low speed vehicle manufacturers but I was just amazed I was constantly amazed by this industry it's such a grassroots industry and at some point you know how like the chinese ev is industry is very heavily subsidized but these kind of tiny small ev uh, micro ev manufacturers they aren't but they are actually they can't for many years in a row they constantly produce three to four times the the vehicle output than conventional evs so people are actually buying these these tiny cars without really thinking about oh i'm buying into a electric vehicle they're just buying them for their daily transport daily usage and that at some point it reached one 1.5 million uh units uh annually but it also hit a regulatory ceiling because these vehicles aren't regulated in, in china 
you're the first person who I've come across who's been able to give me a number of the annual sales uh, of that, just because it's such an untracked industry, you know, one to 1.5 million. I mean, we don't know. I mean, that was the whole, that was the whole point. They're on the street everywhere. If you go to China, that was the thing that was kind of amazing. And I guess that's part of my, my, my question is like, it feels like you're learning a lot from that industry. As you say, it's grassroots and they're, and they're turning up in the way that you, the question that I have specifically is, are you producing the vehicles in a similar way to how they would produce them? which is a very grassroots, non-subsidized, like, you know, you're benefiting from all of their innovation from kind of bottom-up disruption, but for obviously for a Western market, yeah. Yes and no. So we do take advantage of a lot of their supply chain resources, but how the vehicle is built is entirely different. And they their vehicle is still being built the same way as conventional, how a conventional car would be built. And their vehicle is essentially a shrink down um, still a shrink, um, shrink down um, a, a car. So it's it still has those really um, capital heavy sort of these uh, facilities. Uh, and the reason is these vehicles are actually being built at such a large volume that it makes a little more sense for them to to do it the conventional way. But for us, we want to do fast iteration. We, we, uh, we know that in the beginning that this uh, vehicle category is going to take some time to grow into full-size market. So we're really invested in a alternative structure, alternative technique of building these vehicles that are more mid-volume friendly. And by mid-volume friendly, that I, I really mean like 10,000 vehicles a year or 20,000 vehicles a year. But for, for those low-speed vehicle makers or for any automakers, that's small volume. Yes, yeah, completely. Hey, this is uh, this is so fascinating. Uh, I haven't really ever met anybody. I've been searching for someone who's building in this space and has a, has a bit of an understanding about this. Um, the you know the Chinese light light electric vehicle space. You're one of the first, so thank you. Uh, really appreciate. It. I'm sure the audience is going to really appreciate it too. I do want to move on because I've, I've got a couple of further questions about it, which is you know you've obviously. There have been regulatory boundary barriers that you found, and I'm just kind of curious how you've thought about it. The, the L6E uh, certification for Europe or the, the light speed electric vehicle classification for, for America, are they are those easy like certifications to to get? Do you do, Does it require hom- homologation or anything else? Or can you pretty much start selling them without having to do all the, the standard things you might have to do for, to bring a car to market? Yeah, you still need to get it certified in Europe. Uh, fun fact is that our vehicle is designed for the U.S. market initially, and we pivoted towards European market entry approach because we just get a lot of demand from these distributors, and we changed some specs and changed the design of the vehicle and some details, and then certified, get it certified under this L6E category. But in general, I think the European standard is a little higher than the American standard uh, for an EV. And uh, you still need to go through, um, there are requirements on the part that you use and there are requirements on uh, features and even on your weight, for example, weight of the car, your motor train specs, um, and all your batteries. Cool. But it's been a relatively straightforward process to get it certified now that it's in the it's it's in the EU. You know, it didn't require any substantial change, like that substantial changes from the US design, the principal US design? Not substantial, but um, I think we when we 
we're designing for the European market, we want to make sure that we have one product that fit both. And that was a little bit difficult to make sure that it fits both the, uh, the US requirement and, and also the European iQuad requirement. Yeah, yeah. So I want to get to fundraising because this is a thing that when you and I were doing our prep call, like we both lamented the challenges that I think we're, we're facing or, or that the industry faces in this in this space. And, and, and you've done, I think, possibly one of the most creative fundraising campaigns I've seen out of any of the pre-revenue hardware companies trying to, to bring a vehicle to market in terms of how you've managed to, to fundraise. So can you take me through, you know, between when you were like, hey, I've got a seed of an idea through to, uh, you know, Marcus is delivering 100 of these vehicles in Europe and like the companies at this stage of development, like what was the fundraising journey for you? Like what were the, what were the steps along the way? What, where have you found it hard? Where have you found it easy? That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's fundraising for um, new markets and for vehicle categories that are, um, when we started, it was considered niche. And when, when we started, there wasn't even a term micromobility. And, and uh, I'm just really glad that we now have a community of people and you and Horace has been, you know, this, this, this force of good, this force of good promoting this very critical uh, sector. Um, so now we definitely have a lot more interest because people start getting it and, uh, you know, they're investing in bikes, they're investing in mopeds and they're investing in, and, and hopefully uh, we're also racing our Series A soon, so uh, we're, we're going to be start talking to investors on this. Uh, but so far, we haven't brought on institutional investors. We have done a round of um, friends and family, and we've brought in retail investors from equity crowdfunding campaigns. And a lot of these retail investors are themselves potential customers they're really believers in this space, in this category. So uh, we might do do this in the future because we just love how grassroots is this way of funding hardware is. And we get a lot of these brand advocates by bringing on these retail investors into our company. Yeah. So, so you raised, how, how much capital have you raised in total to date? Yeah. So we raised uh, a little less than $11 million. Right. And that's all in equity at this point? No no debt or anything? Not all in equity. We have warrants, we have convertible notes, and we've done equity raise. So it's uh, we, we found our way to, to raise in different ways to get to ourselves to this point. Yeah. And, and are you looking at this point to be taking on, a, you know, with the Series A raise, obviously, you're going to be looking at probably talking to some more institutional investors. What, can you take me through, like, why you chose to go that route of before going to talk to institutional investors before, you know, like, you're going to talk to them now, but you've delivered 100 vehicles. Why didn't you go and talk to them, you know, two two years ago or a year ago? Especially during the, like, the thing as well, it's like, there was so much hype around, like, lightweight electric vehicles or, I mean, Akimoto had like a more than a billion dollar valuation. Um, you know, Tesla was worth more than a trillion dollars. Like there was, there was probably good appetite there from from investors. Yeah, but even at their early stage, you know, even Tesla didn't have institutional investors on board. They have Mercedes at some point, but that was a, a outlier to their story. And we see a lot of these really successful hardware companies 
and they didn't have uh, VC uh, joining them before they have very clear product market fit. I think the business model of venture capital is very tough on hardware because it takes a long time to get it right. And investors want scale fast and they want, you know, really super high return in a short period of time. So, and it's really hard for VCs to fund um, hardware companies from early stage. And so we have been just focusing on the fundamentals of how can we scale up fast in the future when we have the product and when we launch in the market and have the capital. But there's a lot of homework to be done in the beginning. And and this is not really, we're not really a outlier. There are a lot of companies. Uh, I mean, I've just a couple of days ago, I was on podcast, I was listening to Peloton's founder, and, and he's talking about how he's like meeting two investors a day and for many months and not getting a single uh, interest from VCs until they start selling. And then they get like interest from private equity. So it's, it's a, this is a really common story for hardware companies. I think a lot of product-based hardware companies, they have a lot of potential, but it's really hard to sort of... Um, it takes a lot of effort. You, you, you only have so much time at your early stage of building a startup and you should focus on the right things. And f- sometimes for the, the right things for the hardware company is, is really go back to the dirty work of thinking through how you build this, how do you make this, make your supply chain, you know, pandemic proof, for example, and how do you think about inventories and uh, contract production and working capital and these things. But yeah, but we were at a place where we feel more comfortable reaching out to institutional investors and we can potentially give them the return that their business model look for. Yeah. Thank you. That I think is a really sober and uh, a fair assessment of the space. And I think ones that maybe uh, more VC could have heeded uh, in the earlier days of some of the micromobility boom around potential growth and things like that. And this is the timeframes in return. So the one thing I do want to just kind of get your take on is, you know, this is something that I've heard actually from a couple of different entrepreneurs in the space, which is that, hey, look, VC isn't necessarily the best match to capital. Is there, because it, it doesn't strike me that there's capital out there for automotive companies necessarily to be able to build and expand or to fund new auto startups that isn't VC, right? So like, are there networks or, or groups? If someone's trying to build something in your space, and I know I know that you're very generous with your, you know, your knowledge about this, even just sharing this with me, but like, where else have you been looking to, or would you look to if you were in the position that you were in even a year ago or two years ago? Uh, and you're like, hey, I need to raise capital. I know it can't be VC because VC is not particularly well aligned to building hardware. And I'm people think for people who are in like the moped making business or an e-bike making business or a scooter making business, who can see that there's a really good potential if they can get through that kind of trough of death, you know, the the so the valley the valley of challenge between like, hey, we've got a product, we think we can manufacture it too. We've actually got it in the hands of customers. We've got a business here, and it's just a case of scaling up the business. How you'd think about that part? Yeah, that's tricky. I I think I would love to have someone that tell me how uh, as well. It's tricky because that's why building hardware is hard. It's not just because building it is hard, but funding it, the business case for it is is hard to create this convincing unit economics and scalable story to investors. And um, early stage investors, they they tend to normally 
they are more risk averse, but they they look for a higher return. So I would say there are now like impact funds and there are other ways to raise capital that is, but it's still, I think the resource for hardware entrepreneurs, uh, especially for those who are trying to build these kind of product, like sophisticated, you know, really complex supply chain vehicles, products. Um, it's, it's, I think it's difficult. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah, I mean, it's it, I I hundred percent get you. I don't think anybody has. Uh, I've not if I if I come across that or if someone has a good answer who's listening to this podcast, please reach out to me. I'd love to interview you. The thing that kind of like strikes me as interesting is that in some ways, you know, you've got all of these people who are in the in the world of like climate and thinking about this and climate tech and trying to work out like how do we get you know the the tens or hundreds of billions of dollars that we have to like go and deploy it towards good quality electrification of transport. And everybody, all the money is going to electric cars at the moment of the large incumbent manufacturers. And yet there's small companies like yours, which have raised $10 million and got hundred vehicles out into production. And, and like that is clearly there's a market demand for that obviously struggle to be able to get through that funding gap. And it's just one of these things of like, it feels like it's almost a government, a good, an intelligent government would say, we want to provide funding and loans and, you know, uh, infrastructure for the development of companies at that lower end, just so that we can help get them to a certain stage of production or whatever. And I don't quite know what that would look like, but yeah, anyhow. Well, the one thing I do want to just sort of end with is that supply chain question, because you talked about building a, a pandemic resilient supply chain. And I think, you know, you've got such an interesting model of manufacturing in China or manufacturing with kind of, as you say, OEM agnostic production through contract manufacturing. How have you thought about the supply chain and kind of building, you know, it sounds like you've built that from the beginning. You're, you're really a car design firm that outsources its production to the, the most relevant producer. That's like quite an interesting and different way of uh, thinking about car manufacturing. It, anything that you can offer as an insight there about how you've done that? Like, was, it, was that an intentional thing for right from the beginning? And then how have you thought about building that up through the pandemic? Yeah, uh, we, we faced a lot of uh, a myriad of challenges during the pandemic. But our strength is that we have a... China-based supply chain team that is very closely focusing, like talking to upstream suppliers uh, and looking for solutions to, uh, I mean, we faced a lot of challenges like commodity price uh, increase and, um, you know, battery, raw materials uh, and batteries, their price increase and uh, shipping, shipping costs uh, rising and also chip shortage. And these problems aren't really, they're all solvable. They're all, you know, we need to, as a startup, I think the advantage, you can try to find creative solutions to look for alternative resources for, uh, and you can iterate really fast uh, on your product. You can change the specs. Um, you can foresee some of these challenge and really make predictions on the dynamic of the supply chain and iterate your products. So that's exactly what we've done to still get vehicles shipped out and uh, at, a, at a, a very low working capital and low storage situation. But we're still able to work closely with our supply chain and get a lot of our, these issues solved. So I think that really became kind of a know-how and became make our team more resilient to these challenges because this is really common. And we feel like if we can survive this, then 
then that when we scale up the mass production, uh, a lot of problems are going to be a lot easier for us, and we'll, we'll have these kind of strengths in in our entire supply chain by building a better supply chain relationships uh, and have these kind of trust of our suppliers on the fact that we can always deliver and, and build vehicles and ship vehicles. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I just hats off to you guys. How how big is your team? Just out of curiosity, at this point. Yeah, we're around 20 people, not counting. We have a uh, another manufacturing management team. Yeah, so we're around 20 people at our team. Marvelous. And if folks want to find out more about Eli and the vehicle that you're building, where would they find a website on that? Yeah, so they can go to our uh, website at www.eli.world. And if they want, we are fundraising. Uh, and like I mentioned, we've done a couple rounds of equity crowdfunding. So if they want to join us on that, then they can email us at hello at eli.world, or they can just simply uh, look us up on Google. And for institutional investors, you know, if you're listening, if you're interested, you know, feel free to reach out to me as well. Awesome. And they, that's uh, just li at uh, eli.world, right? Yeah, that's correct. Awesome, excellent. And and the uh, the one thing as well that I will chuck in there as a as a small little uh, tidbit is that uh, Marcus will be up on stage speaking at Micromobility America uh, on the fifteenth and sixteenth of September in San Francisco or in the Bay Area. Really looking forward to having you there, Marcus. I'm really excited to be there. Yeah. Yeah, there's going to be, we're going to have quite a few uh, really, really interesting vehicles like yourselves are going to be there, but Nimbus is going to be there as well. Um, we've got some some other uh, vehicles as well that, that are new and just coming to market. So really, really cool. Very exciting. All the uh, all the cool kids will be there. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, hey, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And thank you so much for this. I mean, this is such a, such a fascinating and interesting conversation. And I, I really just like, as I said, hats off to you for the, the where you've got to today. And thank you so much for telling, be willing to tell the story. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy. It's a pleasure talking to you. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, that's it. Fantastic. <laughs>